0: Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley.
1: Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Isaiah The chapter is 41, and the verses are 10 through 14. I shall be reading from the New King James Version. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them, those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Amen. You may be seated.
0: Would you open God's book, please, to 1 Kings chapter 17, and that's where our lesson will begin in just a few minutes. I want to take you through some preliminary things first, and then we'll get to 1 Kings chapter 17. Wonderful to see all of you here. This sermon came as a result of a request. Sometimes people ask me about particular subjects, and I'm happy to try to address those. And One of our sweet sisters approached me a couple of weeks ago and said, having some things going on in my life. I'm discouraged. Could you preach about discouragement and encouragement? And I'm happy to do that. I think that in this room, there must be a number of people who are facing things in their lives that make them very discouraged. I don't know that it's everybody. i rather doubt that. But for some of you, it's grievous. And this sermon is particularly for you. But the fact of the matter is we're part of the human race, and the human experience is sometimes going to create discouragement. I think that discouragement is, um, is a result of disappointment, and disappointment is a result of the fact that we have in our minds what we think will happen in life. We sort of play it out in our minds, in our imaginations, and then we act like that's how it's going to work. And of course, life's not like that, and sometimes it doesn't, and that Creates disappointment, and disappointment creates discouragement. And dis- discouragement sometimes can lead to hopelessness. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to show you five different important characters of the Bible. I'm just going to touch on the first four, and then we're going to go deeper into the last one. The last one's going to be Elijah. If you went to paradise today, and you could draw out some of the men who you, you, you've read about through your life in the Scriptures, and you could just have a private conversation and say, I just want to know. I mean, I know that you're you're in bliss. I know that you have you have heaven to look forward to for all eternity. I just want to know this this thing. I, w- I want to know: Did you sometimes face discouragement? I mean, suppose you pulled Moses out of there. Moses, were there times you were discouraged? And Moses would raise his eyebrows, I think, and he would say, "Oh, oh, yeah." There were times, and maybe he would reference Numbers chapter twelve, and that was when he had married. Uh, an Ethiopian woman, a Cushite woman. God did not prohibit that. He had the, 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 God, God's approval to marry this woman. But, but his sister, Miriam, didn't approve of it. And Aaron didn't like it either. And so his brother and sister in the flesh came to him and said, we don't like this. This is not good. And I don't know why Miriam was so offended by it. It may be that, that Miriam had some prestige attached to her because her, her brother was Moses. He's the lawgiver. He's the leader of Israel. I don't know. And maybe she thought that, that that was going to be taken away from her now that he had married this woman. But she objects. Then one thing in the conversation leads to another. And Miriam says, we don't know why you have taken so much on yourself. Aren't we, Aaron and she, aren't we holy too? And the implication was that you, you have presumed to take this role as leader in Israel But you don't really deserve it because we're equally holy with you. Of course, that was ridiculous. It wasn't about his holiness, it was that God appointed him for this job. And God then comes and says to Miriam and Aaron, What do you think you're doing? What do you, You, you would, do you understand that I'm the one that chose Moses? And do you understand that, that, I speak to him face to face, and why weren't you afraid to talk this way to my servant Moses? It's in this text, by the way, that the Bible parenthetically says that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. Some translations say the most humble man in all the earth. And God smites Miriam, Moses' sister, with leprosy. And what is Moses' reaction? He begins to beg God, don't kill her. Just don't kill her. Don't take her life away from her. And he begs for mercy for his sister who has just let him have it, yeah, Moses would say, I I, I had times of discouragement. I knew knew what that was like. What if you ask Joseph? I've always been impressed with the fact that Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, and then he goes, and you know how it works out. He goes to prison for a while innocent, but he goes to prison, and then ultimately he comes to be second place just under Pharaoh in power, and he has wealth and power and a beautiful wife, and he has children. In chapter 41, verse 51 of Genesis, he says, God's God's caused me to forget all my toil and all my father's house, and here he is with the blessings of God. But you have to ask yourself this question. How, How come Joseph didn't go back to see his father when he, Joseph, came to the place where he had power and money and, and all of this, he could have gone back to check on his father, but he didn't do it. And presumably, it's because he thought his dad was in on it, on the slavery thing. He thought his dad was in on it. I mean, after all, it was his brothers who sold him. But it was father, who Jacob, who had sent him to his brothers on that occasion. It sure smelled like his dad had put him in that. I don't know about that. What I know is that that there's this moment when he has all of this power, but he doesn't go back. He doesn't go back. They come to him. Joseph, did you sometimes face discouragement? I think he would say, I spent over two years in prison for something I didn't do. My brother sold me into slavery. I thought my father was in on it. And all of those years... I struggled with that. And the answer is yes. What about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7 and verse 19? And John the Baptist is, so you bring him out and say, did you sometimes face discouragement? And in this passage, what you have is is John and he's in prison and and he takes a couple of of his disciples and, and he says, you go find Jesus and you ask him this question. Are you the one that should come or do we look for another? Come on. John knows, John's his cousin. John knows him. John knows Jesus. He knows who he is. He knows he's the Messiah. There's no question about this. Why would he ask a question like this? And the answer has to be that he is, are you ready for this? He's discouraged. He's just so discouraged. Jesus' response, by the way, was to say, you go back and tell him that the blind have their sight, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed. What about our Lord? Our Lord? Any question in your mind that 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 Jesus faced discouragement? You don't. You know. You don't question that. You do not question that. You see him going alone to pray, and you see him in John chapter six and sixty six, and the Bible says that that his disciples, some of them, came to him and they listened to him preach, and they just they just couldn't take it, and so the Bible says many of his disciples just walked away. There's just apostasy. They just leave him, and Jesus turns, and this is the touching moment that he turns to those who are closest to him. And he says to those apostles, would you also go away? You reckon Jesus, our Lord, was ever discouraged? The point I'm, I'm making is that these are the, Jesus is the ultimate, but these others. You have John the Baptist and Moses and, and Joseph, and these are wonderful characters. We have such great admiration for them. All right, so let's add the last one to the list. And this is the one where I want to spend most of my time this morning. It's Elijah. Elijah. When you read the book of Job, you come to a couple of places where verses will begin with these words, now there was a day. In the life of Elijah, there was a day. And I am going to show you his discouragement, so I'm going to tell you briefly the story of, of his life, just hit some high spots, and then I'm going to show you that day, and then I'm going to draw three lessons, practical lessons for us from that. That's going to be the sermon for this morning. And so we start in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and God tells Elijah, I want you to go to Ahab, wicked, old, sorry. Ahab is married to Jezebel, and she's brought Baal worship into Israel. And now the cool thing to do, the popular thing to do, is to worship this idol, Baal. It's miserable. And and God uses water to punish Israel. Now, it's interesting in Scripture, and you can just let your mind run over this. It's interesting in Scripture that sometimes God would turn the faucet up too high, the rain, and you would have flood. And, and you know, we can't take that. Or he would turn the faucet the other way and turn it off. We can't take that. Matthew chapter 5 says it's his rain. God causes his rain to fall on the evil and the good. His son on the. the, the it's his rain, and I'm rather glad about that. So God says, Go to Ahab and tell him it's not going to rain. In James chapter 5 and verse 17, James makes reference to this when talking about prayer and says, you know, Elijah was like us. He had a like nature to us, and he prayed, and and God, God turned off the rain for three and a half years. Well, that's back to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 1 Kings 17, our text this morning. So, it's not going to rain. Now, I want you to remind you, because we're going three and a half years, and and you, your famine sets in. But when you read that, I know what comes to your mind. What, hap- what would happen in Huntsville, Alabama, if we didn't have rain for three years? I mean, I mean, we would we'd be in trouble really fast. Well, bear in mind that in in Samaria they had these cisterns, and we've talked about the cisterns in that part of the world. And the rain only came once a year, and they would dig these tremendous. Cisterns that were magnificent and huge, and in the rainy season, those things would fill up, and it would be plenty of water for the, all, all the year. You go there now, and you say, "Wow, this, there's no water here. This is just dry." Yeah, but they had the cisterns, and it was big enough to supply the people the, the water they needed for the year. Well, the cisterns were huge, and the cisterns would sustain them for a long time. And now you have three years, three and a half years, but I'm telling you, they're getting low, and they're barely surviving. In chapter 17, Elijah has to go. So God says, now, things are going to get kind of dicey. I want you to go to, to Cherith. Go east and go to, go to the brook Cherith, and there I'm going to sustain you. And so God sends ravens in the morning and the evening, and they, they bring him bread and meat, and then he has water from the, brink, the, the brook there. And he has sustenance. But the drought was rough. And before long, the brook dries up, Cherith. And God says, now, I want you to go to the widow at Zarephath and she will sustain you. So he goes there and he finds her. That's not hard. And when he gets there, uh, he finds her easily and, and she is gathering wood, some sticks. And he says, would you bring me a cup of water? And she says, yes. And she went to get a cup of water. And he said, oh, and could you bring me a piece of bread, please? I'm hungry, a piece of bread. She said, look, I, I can't do that. It's my son and me. We're the only ones together, and and I've got a little bit of flour, and I've got a little bit of oil, and that's it. And we're, I'm, gonna, I'm getting sticks, and I'm going to prepare this. We have one more time to, for a little bread, and then we're going to starve to death. We've got no, nothing else. That's it. And he said, God will, God will make your flour and your oil replenish. It will continue to replenish. Make me a little... Piece of bread first. It was a test of her faith. It was huge. And she did it. And you know what? God made sure that the flour didn't run out, the oil didn't run out until the rain came. So all this time, the, the, the food is going to be there. And Elijah is proven to be a man of God. Before long, some time passes and her son dies. And, and she, she's naturally very upset about that. And Elijah raises the boy from the dead. And that's a wonderful moment in his life. Now, we turn to chapter 18. And and so three years, we jumped three years. The famine is grievous in Samaria. And God says to Elijah, okay, it's time. It's time enough. In the meantime, Ahab and his servant Obadiah are looking for brooks or, or ponds or any kind of water that they didn't have before. They split up and they're out looking for water. And Elijah comes to Obadiah and says, I need you to, to tell Ahab I'm here. I'm not, I, no, no. He says, Elijah, I can't tell him that because you know what? He's been hunting you for all this time. He's hunted you everywhere. And if he finds you, you're, he's going to kill you. But if you don't show up, if I say you're making an appointment with him and you don't show up, he will kill me. And so I—I don't make me do this. Don't make me do it. Elijah said, it's going to be all right. Tell him I'll, I'll be coming today to see him. All right. So Elijah meets Ahab. And I'm in chapter 18, and I want to go to verse 18. Uh, 17. Ahab saw him. Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I'm not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, and he makes this proposal. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is a contest of the gods you got to love this. I mean, you, you believe in Baal, the idol Baal. Let's just go ahead and have a test. You bring the 450 prophets of Baal, and I'll come just myself with, with the Jehovah God, and, and we, will, we will have a contest to bring all of Israel. I want everybody to see this. And so they come, and they build an altar, and they put wood on it, and, and they cut up a bowl, and they put it on there, the meat on there. And the proposition is this. The, the prophets of Baal get to, they've set the altar up. They get to call to their God Baal to bring fire down and, and, and burn the sacrifice. And then Elijah's going to get, to do the same thing. So it's, it's just a, it's an amazing thing. It's gonna, to call on God for a miraculous fire to burn. The interesting thing to me is that the people of Baal would do it. Why would, why would they do it? And the answer is because Satan's very powerful. He's a liar, and Satan is powerful enough to convince people of what isn't true. And he had convinced these people they thought they could win this. And it's just, um, it's jaw-dropping. But they did. That's what they thought. So they put the bull on there, and beginning in the morning and all through the day till almost the evening sacrifice, the prophets of Baal, 450 of them. They're crying and screaming, and they're making to do over Baal and nothing. Nothing happens. Elijah says, all right, now it's my turn. He, he put the altar back in shape. He brought 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He got the, the bullock on there. And then he said, now before we start, I need some water. Bring me four of your, of your water pots or barrels of water. He dug a trench around the altar, and he said, pour it on the top. And so they, they drenched it. He said, do it again. They did it again. Do it again. They did it again. It's very much like Jesus waiting to go see about Lazarus when Lazarus died. Jesus didn't go immediately because he wanted the body to start decomposing. It was so that when he performed the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, nobody would wonder if Lazarus was really dead. In this case, nobody's going to wonder if this is a mighty miracle of God. And so Elijah cries out to God. I suppose it was like a bolt of lightning I don't, I know that the Bible describes it as fire coming from heaven. You, you think about all that water and it happened in a moment. And when it happened, the fire was so hot that it didn't just burn up the wood and the bull and it, it just dissolved the stones. How many, what, how many degrees to just dissolve stones? And that's what happened. And of course, all the water was leaked. When it was finished, what you had is just a little crater there where the altar used to be. And it was so awesome. I've been, I've been there and looked at Carmel. By the way, do you know that Mount Carmel is still Mount Carmel where this happened? It's still there. Of course, it's still there. You can just stand there in the Valley of Jezreel and just look at it. And, and, and when I did, I, I just imagined that altar on top of there and how that must have been. The moment was so powerful that Elijah says to the people of Israel who now have figured this out, I want you to go and don't let any of those prophets of Baal escape and bring them down to the brook. And they took them and executed all 450. The purpose of Elijah is to rid Israel of Baal. We've got to come back to God. He will not approve us and we will not survive that. This is the only way. We've got to rid it of this disease called Baal worship. And so Elijah feels pretty good. He goes to he goes to Ahab and he says, Ahab, the rain's coming. I think you'd better get on home because it's going to be a big rain. And God brought up a rain and saturated the earth with it. But when Ahab gets home, he tells Jezebel. And now we get to verse uh, chapter 19. So he tells Jezebel about the 450 prophets, and she sees red. Now she's listen, she's got to be the most wicked woman who ever lived. I mean, she's eaten up with Baal worship, so that means. And she's got power and she's brought it into Israel and she thinks she's somebody. And she says to a a servant, you go tell Elijah that at this time tomorrow, you're going to be just like those prophets of Baal were. I'm going to make sure that you die for this. Elijah goes from a high, a spiritual high, I don't think he saw this coming. I think he thought that this was going to be a death knell blow to, the, to Baal worship and he doesn't see so here's what happens is that he takes off. He he runs to Beersheba and he finds a place to hide and he hides under a juniper tree and then he prays to God. Now I'm in, I'm in chapter I'm in chapter 19 now and I want to I want to read beginning in verse 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. There's a lot of self-pity there, and he's depressed. And he cries out to God in verse 4, Elijah does just look just 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 kill me, just just take my life. I life's no good for me. I just want to die. Now the level of have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever been discouraged enough that you preferred leaving this world? I don't. I'm not saying that. It, I'm not asking you were you ever suicidal. That's a whole different level. I'm talking about that. It just seemed to you that leaving this life was better than staying in it. That's where Elijah is right now. And he goes in this cave, and he says, and he defends it to God. And how's God going to respond? Now, I'm in verse 11. This is God speaking. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after that, a small, a still small voice, God talks quietly to him. So it was when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah. So he repeats it. God repeats it. Now, what are you doing here, Elijah, again? Tell me again. Well, Elijah repeats him what he said. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of, Is- uh, of hosts <clears throat> because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. God says, Elijah, I want you to get to work. I've got work for you to do. Here's what I want you to do. And then in verse 18... But by the way, he says, yet, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. There's 7,000. I just want you to know there's 7,000. Now, there are three things that God does for Elijah. And I would argue that perhaps, I mean, it's in a non-miraculous way, but that God does for us when we're discouraged. And when we're discouraged, this is the advice I would give. Because this is what God did. Now, the first thing is, is that, that we need to remember the providential care of God in our lives. So, so what, what was true about Elijah was that there were three different occasions where God made sure he had sustenance. God was there taking care of him. And You, you go back to, to the ravens who brought in the morning and the evening, it brought him food and sustenance. And you go to the widow at Zarephath and there's this magnificent miracle to make sure that Elijah had enough food. God did that. And then you go down and, and what, what's going to happen next at the end is the angel is going to come when he's under that juniper tree and he's going to give him food and, and he cares for, God's always helped Elijah. Has, but has God been good to you? Has God been good to you? And what we have to do when we're discouraged is stop and take a breath and, and remember that, that That he has. And just because I'm struggling right now does not mean that God has abandoned me. Look, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3 calls God the God of comfort. Would you just take comfort in that? He's the God of comfort. There are four ways that come to the surface in my mind that right now God is comforting you and me. But let's bear them in mind. The first one is the close friendships that I have with other Christians. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, the Bible says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves. And Christians do that. And it's happening all the time in this church. Sometimes, uh, we've many times, we've had funerals in this auditorium. And I, Paul and I have stood many times by caskets that sat right here. But what you may not realize is that after that happens, in the days and weeks that follow that, We've got people in this church who are going back to that new widow or new widower. And many times it's people who have experienced this themselves. themselves, And they they come and they, they say, I, I want to come have lunch. Let's do lunch together. I want to talk. Or drop by the house and just say, can I have just a minute? Can we just talk? Or be here behind the auditorium in, in the lobby out there and say, I, I just want to say some things to you to encourage you what's going on there? It's Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 where the, the Bible says about Christians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that's God's comfort, isn't it? Number two, it's, it's the study of the Bible. It's the study of the Bible. The way that we talk to God today is through prayer. The way he talks to us is by scripture. Always be close to the word. Remember in John 14, 15, and 16, the way that the that the way the Holy Spirit is described, the Holy Spirit gave us the Bible by inspired men. How is the Holy Spirit described? In the King James there, he's called the comforter. Want to talk about being discouraged? And so in chapter 14 and verse uh, uh, verse number 16, you have comforter. He's the comforter. In 1426 and 1526 and 16 in verse 7, he's called the comforter. Now, when I say that, and I say the scriptures, I'm gonna, I want you to think about, it. just let your mind go over scriptures. What are the passages in the Word of God that are most comforting to you when you face discouragement? What comes into your mind when I say that? I love 1 Thessalonians 4 and 18, and he talks about end times. He talks about us leaving this world for the next one, and he ends that by saying, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Those are comforting words. In Romans 8 and 38, I'm I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That's comforting. And the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want it. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? Because God is with me, because thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And and, and in Psalm 46 in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I'm telling you that there's my comfort when I'm discouraged. And when we, the third one would be worship, public worship, like we're doing right now. And Colossians 3.16 says that we are to sing with grace in our hearts to each other. We're singing in praise to God, and our worship is, is vertical, but it's also horizontal, and we're singing to each other, and we did it this morning. I just want to ask you a question. Don't you have times when you're discouraged, and you come in those doors back there, and you get to be with your people? You get to be with the family of God, and, and we come in this room, and then we sing together. Now, i am gonna tell you something. Sometimes people who come in here are grievously discouraged, and we sing, sing to me of heaven, sing the song of peace from the toils that bind me, it will give release. You believe that's true? Yeah, it's true. And we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the habit of some is, but we exhort one another. And so much the more as the day approaches. It's about prayer. God comforts us all the time through prayer. You're taking advantage of that. Philippians 4 6. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your requests be known to God and the peace of God that passes understanding will keep your hearts and minds. What is that except comfort when you're discouraged? You keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the first thing is that, that, it, that Elijah had to do was to remember, just remember what God had done and was doing for him. Don't be saying, I just want to die because life's no good. Don't say that. God's still there. Now, here's the second thing. Never let discouragement make you lose your grip on the reality of God's presence in your life. So what does God do? Now, here's here's Elijah. His life is threatened, and he goes goes, and he's hiding in a cave. And God comes and says, Elijah, what are you doing in there? What are you doing? I'm telling you what I'm doing. All of Israel's forsaken me and they've forsaken you and they've torn down the altars and now I'm the only one left and they're seeking my life right now. That's what I'm doing in the cave. And then God does these things. He shakes the rocks. He blows the wind so hard that you can't imagine. There's fire. And then he said, now tell me again why you're in this cave. what, What sense do you make of that? The point is that Look, God hadn't left him. God was still there, but not just that. Baal is a figment of people's imagination. God, Jehovah, is real, and he is beyond powerful. By the way, Elijah, do you remember that God's still here and that he's still all-powerful? Do you remember that? See, a man discouraged needs to remember that. God hadn't moved. God God is still there, and he's still ever a bit as powerful and eternal as he ever was. Time is filled with swift transition. Nought of earth unmoved can stand. Build your hope on things eternal. Hold God's unchanging hand. I learned this from Paul, you know. Don't, don't you ever let discouragement make you lose your grip on God's reality and presence. And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 16, he said, At my first answer, nobody stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. But the Lord did. There's no temptation taken you, but such as common to man. But God is faithful. Is he still faithful? Is he still faithful to you? Who will not permit you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make also a way of escape. Matthew 28 and 20, after the Great Commission, he said, And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Is he? Is that true? Ephesians 4, 6, there's one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. Is that true? Is it still true? Hebrews 13.5 is very dear to my heart. I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Sometimes we just need a really good dose of the reality of God's presence. He's still the same God and he's still on his throne. And I declare all is well. Hebrews 1.14, the angels of God are called ministering spirit, sent forth to minister to those of us who are part of his kingdom. I don't know all about that. I know very little about it, actually. I just know the Bible says that it's true. And here's the third and final one. What did we learn? You've got to allow God's people to build you up. So after God had shown his magnificent power and then had Elijah to repeat himself, then then God very gently, in a small, still voice, He talks to him calmly, very calmly, calmly. And he says, now, here's what I've got for you to do. You've had rest and sustenance, and now I want you to get up, and I want you to get back to work. I've got things for you to do. You've got purpose in your life, and it came straight from me. Here's what I want you to do. And then one more thing, Elijah. There are 7,000 of my people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They haven't kissed Baal. And what's that about? It's just that, okay, this this jazz is about how that that you're all alone now, and they seek your life. Well, maybe they seek your life, but you're not all alone. You just just don't know where they are. You just haven't seen them. There's there's another instance of this. If I can just touch it, in 2 Kings 6, verse 18, and Elisha is very unpopular with the king of Syria who's trying to destroy Israel trying to war with them and destroy Israel and Elisha but this time has taken Elijah's place and and so he and his servants go to Dothan or servant one servant go to Dothan and i guess they're hiding out and and the king of Syria surrounds that little town all the way around for the purpose of killing Elisha i got to get rid of Elisha prophet of God. And the servant says, Elisha, they're all around here. I don't think this looks good at all. We don't have a chance. And Elisha just smiles and says, why, the number that's with us is greater than the number that's with him. What do you mean? And Elisha prays to God and said, God, open up his eyes. Let him see what I see. And there was horses. He opens his eyes, and now you have the angelic host that's all the way around them. And Elisha was right. The horses and their riders and the power was magnificent. He just couldn't see them. He he just couldn't see them. In first John 4 and verse 4, we read these words. Ready? Now, are you discouraged? Have you been are you gonna be discouraged? Probably so sometime. Ready? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I think it's very valuable when you think about discouragement to realize that the the Bible characters who are the greats take your choice. All had moments of discouragement, sometimes grievous, dark discouragement. When you get to Matthew chapter 17 and the Mount of Transfiguration with our Lord Jesus, you know who's standing there? Moses and Elijah. Any doubt in your mind that that Elijah went to glory? No. You want to know how Elijah died? The answer is he never did. He never died. God came and fetched him in a a chariot of of a whirlwind and took him on to glory. It It was just a display to say, this is my servant. you You can hardly imagine that a man like that, please God like that, would sometimes face the kind of discouragement that would rise to the level of him saying, I just think I want to die. I'd rather die than live. But he did. But he did. And God comes very gently to him. He doesn't come harshly. He comes gently. And he reminds him of these things which in principle are still applicable to you and to me. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.